Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we discuss the sometimes difficult topic, the end of life. We've discussed it before, usually with regard to those whose life is ending. Today we'll focus a little bit more on those who care for them, health professionals, social workers, and others. Next Monday is National Healthcare Decisions Day. And joining us to talk about those decisions and the day is Dr. Carol Wallace, Assistant Professor in the School of Social Work at St. Louis University. Kara, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, I mentioned at the outset that this is sometimes a difficult topic. What got you into it? Yes. Uh, Well, I was actually a social worker in the hospital setting first. And I loved working in the hospital, um, loved the fast-paced nature of it. But I often felt that I wasn't able to to follow through with my patients and families. I was often throwing resources at them, getting them out the door, and then wondering what happened to them. Mm. And I had a really wonderful mentor at the time who suggested um, that I look into hospice care. And I I was really young at the time and thought, what do I know about people who are dying? Um, And I was intimidated by it, like I think probably most of your listeners. And I ended up going on the job search right after I finished my master's degree and landed in a hospice um, company. And and I fell in love. I fell in love with working people at the end of life and um, really became passionate about how people die and how we can help them achieve better deaths. It can be rewarding, I, I'm assuming now, yes. in that you see a, a positive response. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a privilege to get to walk that path with people. Uh, it's a very intimate time for families as they approach the end of life. And um, I think people often think, I just want it over with. Um, but there's actually a lot of growth that happens as someone approaches the end of their life. And really, the more that we can talk about it and be open to that growth, the more that can occur. What, what kind of growth? Uh, well, I just think closure, certainly relationships. Um, and uh, there's something about caring for someone else that's really personal and meaningful for people. And when we have the time to process that and the time to receive support during that crucial mm-hmm. period, uh, it can really help with bereavement. Um, there are studies that show with support, people who have had um, the support at that crucial time in taking care of a loved one who's dying, their bereavement period is actually better than mm-hmm. those who maybe didn't have that time or support at the end of life. What do you think in your experiences has uh, shown you as the number one end of life issue to contend with? I think it's the conversation. I think it's um, being open to thinking about it, to talking about it, to planning for it. Um, Because we are so often against those things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When we don't prepare, we often aren't aware of what we want during that time. And so if we're waiting until we're critically ill to make decisions, um, then we haven't had time to really think about what's important to us. And then we don't achieve those things that are important to us. and we're often in and out of the hospitals, which can be noisy. You know, we're, there's poking, there's prodding, there's lots of lights. Um, and there's very little peace, um, I think, if we're facing the end of our life in that setting compared to maybe someone who um, wants to be at home, surrounded by family and support. Mm-hmm. What what other kinds of decisions are we talking about? I, I, I assume I, we've, we've talked about this issue before. Sure. There are very practical decisions that should be made. Right. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that you want to think about is if I were unable to make decisions for myself, who would I want to make those decisions for me? Do they share the same values that I have? Um, Do they know what kinds of things are important to me, like um, where I want to die or the types of 
care I'd like to receive, whether or not I would want a feeding tube, whether or not I would want to be resuscitated, um, and all of those kinds of things. Would I want treatment for infection if I were, um, you know, we were having this conversation earlier, had pneumonia, and um, maybe with Alzheimer's or those kinds of things. And and we don't often think or talk about those things. Advanced directives. Uh, making the plan well known and, and right. actually formalized in, in writing. Absolutely. It should be formalized. Should You should get a lawyer at some point, correct? Yeah. And you can actually do some of these forms without a lawyer. But I think sometimes we're more comfortable with someone who mm-hmm. has a lot of experience with these forms. Um, and and lawyers certainly have that experience. Um, and, and there's several different forms that you should be thinking about. The power of attorney, medical mm-hmm. power of attorney, which says who you would want to make those decisions for you in the event that you couldn't make those decisions for yourself. There's also what's called a living will or a healthcare directive, mm-hmm. which is more about what types of decisions. It's kind of a roadmap for someone. Um, what types of decisions would you want made at those critical decision points? And while I do think those documents are important and should be documented um, formally, sometimes it's the conversations that are more meaningful. Because if you've completed the documents um, but not had the conversations, people can still be left really confused about what you want. An issue that we keep hearing more and more about is one that I'm sure that you have uh, thought about, and that is assisted suicide at end of life. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to make that choice, and in most places they, they can't. What, what's your thoughts about that? You know, I think that topic gets a lot of attention right now. It's really um, politicized mm-hmm, right now. Mm-hmm. I, and um, there are people with really strong feelings about assisted suicide. Um, I'm a member of the Gateway End of Life Coalition group, and we've chosen not to take a stance mm-hmm. on that, um, And what, regardless of where we are, are personally with that. But I think it boils down to people wanting control about um, what their choices are. And there's lots of ways to get control um, by starting with the other conversation that we're having here today, which mm-hmm. is related to advanced care planning and advanced directives and and really broadening that conversation rather than boiling it down to this politicized discussion mm-hmm. about assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. How can we broaden that? Some of the pardon me, <clears throat> some of the material that I've seen associated with your visit here today indicates that uh, uh, often, maybe it's not often, but sometimes doctors drop the ball when it comes to uh, dealing with these issues. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I think, one, we're getting better in training our physicians and social workers mm-hmm. and nurses to, to do better with this conversation. But if you think about the default program of doctors, right, it's mm-hmm. to fix, to, mm-hmm. to um, cure, right, to help people get better. So with that being the default setting, it's difficult then to flip that switch to really think about when getting better uh, is not an option anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? This conversation is difficult and uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I don't think that our healthcare professionals are always exempt from that feeling of difficulty. And um, so, yes, often it's easier for some people to brush by it or to think, oh, my patient's not ready for this conversation, their family's not ready for this conversation, and to keep delaying it. Um, and and then when we start the conversation as late as we often do, um, patients and their families aren't getting to much-needed resources mm-hmm. like palliative care and end-of-life care in hospice. How do you tell someone they're dying? Well, I think um, it's not always about just telling someone that, there's, that they're dying, mm-hmm. but I think you can say, you can talk about what are their goals of care, 
what are they most concerned about? What's what are what's most important to them at this time in their life um, is where you start that conversation. Uh, I often, when I'm faced with difficult conversations with with patients, start with what they know um, because often they already know that they're dying Mm -hmm. and they just haven't had that conversation with anyone yet. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one way to open the door. We should also mention caregivers because uh, the wear and tear on caregivers can be extreme and you have to work with them as well. Absolutely. I think this is not a conversation with the patient alone. Uh, Family members are increasingly involved, um, especially as we see people are living with chronic illness for much longer periods of time. And uh, people rely on their family members and their caregivers to help them uh, make critical decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I'm just glancing here at uh, an email that we received from Madonna. Lives in Crestwood has sent us this email writing, I would beg anyone listening to tell your loved ones what your end of life plans are. As one who is left to guess what mom would have wanted, I can promise you the guilt that you may have guessed wrong will haunt you after they've passed. How do you convince a family member who is in full avoidance mode to discuss and choose their end of life plans? That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think um, it starts with with broaching the conversation. You know, when I was in my early 20s as a hospice social worker, um, I was married to my husband who hated that I was a hospice social worker because I wanted to talk about my day and I wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about um, death and dying and what I was seeing every day. And um, he was really adverse to that conversation initially. And Mm -hmm. so I, I think it takes time. Many people think that advanced care planning is something that you do one time, that you sit down with your family and say, what are your wishes? And what do you want? But but it's really more about it being an ongoing process. And I think that you just try to introduce the conversation in a non-threatening way. And you can make it about yourself and your own experiences and why this is important to you. And let it grow and give it time. Yeah. Uh, while we're on this part of the subject, uh, let's bring in Michael, who is calling from St. Louis. Uh, let's uh, see what Michael has to say. You're on the air, Michael. Go ahead. Hi, yes. Um, as somebody who's gone from emergency medicine to um, court-appointed guardianship, I sort of have seen both sides of this play out. And it seems like one of the biggest disconnects we have is between, you know, what people have initially said they want or what they've put in their wishes and then what the person that they've appointed to carry out those wishes wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who, you know, has made end-of-life decisions, has decided that they no longer want to continue. And then when they call a family member and say, you know, you need to come to the hospital, I think it's time. There's, you know, a freak out moment that happens and then plans change and things are done probably unnecessarily. And then we're sort of faced with what, who do we listen to um, on that subject? And I think that causes a lot of problems and people's wishes maybe aren't being respected because of that. All right, Michael, thanks for the call. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's something I've seen as well, which brings me back to why the conversation is even more important than the documents itself. I mean, we really sometimes think that there's the default person for who should make decisions Mm -hmm. for us. And um, sometimes that default person isn't the right person, right? Can that person really make the decisions that I would ask for them to make? 
Um, and and have we thought and talked enough about this for me to feel comfort- confident and comfortable with that? Mm. And reality is when you name someone as a power of attorney and if you can't speak for yourself, that's when that person can, can make decisions for you. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to trust that they will follow that directive. Um, one thing that I think limits people from wanting to complete a directive is they feel like they're giving away that power, mm-hmm. but they're not. Um, an advanced directive, a medical power of attorney, does not go into effect just because you've completed it. You are always in control of making your own decisions unless or until um, you are incapacitated to make those decisions. We are talking with Kara Wallace, assistant professor in the School of Social Work at St. Louis University. And we're talking about, talking about end-of-life issues. Uh, we'd like to bring you into this conversation. If you have questions or concerns or issues you'd like to uh, discuss with uh, Dr. Wallace, give us a call at 382-8255. That's uh, 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer a tweet, do so at STL on air. Back to continue our discussion in a moment. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our discussion of end-of-life issues. Um, we have, as I say, a number of calls that have started coming, Kara. I'm going to go right to them, if, sure, great. if that's okay with you. We'll start with Jerry calling from O'Fallon. Jerry, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, having personally experienced the loss of my parents and, and other older people I've known and uh, had a little time in, the, uh, uh, in an industry where we, we worked with hospices, it just continues to... to uh, to my dismay, it continues that the, the, the Americans don't seem to be able to talk about death, and the overall um, perception of hospice is that it's some it's some form of giving up, when in fact it, it's the opposite. It makes uh, you know people's last time here on Earth uh, much much more in many ways uh, uh, much more fulfilling. And I just I have I just wish people out there would start to realize that it's beneficial. Uh, for the person facing uh, the end of their time, and it's much—it's so beneficial for family members as well. And I wish people—I wish we would come to adopt uh, uh, looking into hospice as an alternative uh, earlier than, than than we even consider it. Uh, Jerry, thank you. thanks for the call. I, I think it's the last six months of life. Is that right? Typically for the yes. beginning of hospice care. That's that's correct. But of course, it can be very difficult to pinpoint at what point yeah, that course. six months is sure. appropriate. I, but I think the caller is exactly right. And uh, and I, I would argue that we're, we've come a long way in these discussions. You can can look at some of the popular um, books that have come out of Tolga Wande's um, On Being Mortal um, and, and some others that are on the national bestsellers list that are helping people think about this conversation. Um, I've, I've To his point about the meaning of hospice, I actually did a recent study where we um, – we asked people um, who are already on hospice care, what did hospice mean to you when you first learned about it as an option for, mm. um, for your care? And uh, he's exactly right. People in you know, public perception of hospice is that it's, it's death. It's the end. That it's about you know, really not understanding what hospice is. They think of it as a place rather than a service. Um, people often um, think about it associated with the, with the symptoms or the illness. 
And, and then following that question, I asked people, and remember these were patients and family members who are currently ask, accessing hospice care, what does hospice mean to you today? And their, their discussion was completely different, right? It was, well, it's about the peace and the comfort mm-hmm. and the, the people who are taking care of me. And um, it was more about what they received from the services and had a better understanding of what hospice meant and as a service. Mm-hmm. And I think the experience of hospice really does change the meaning of hospice for people, which in my mind tells us we should be helping our students um, and healthcare professionals understand what hospice is in a more meaningful way mm-hmm. um, to, to help them have better conversations earlier with patients and families, kind of reframing hospice, so to speak. As you indicated, you can't back time the time of your death and right. know when that's going to happen. And if there is this six-month window, how do you prepare for hospice? I mean, you could what do you make a reservation of some sort? How does that work? Well, I think it starts with the advanced care planning process, which starts, you know, we're doing this process with our students in college, right, in their 20s. Mm. Um, it's never too early to have this conversation. And if you think about it, as difficult as the conversation is, it's much more difficult when you're facing terminal illness than when you're healthy. Um, the conversation project is one tool that can help you help guide this conversation. And they have a website if you if you look that up. Um, but it's more about um, one, starting when you're healthy so that you can then access what your wishes would be when you're facing illness. Let's take another call. Maureen joins us from St. Louis. Maureen, thanks for being with us. You're on the air. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, some people have a misconception that hospice is for cancer patients. And what we found out by caring for our uh, cousin who was on the cusp of being a centenarian, almost 100 years old, that mm-hmm. those services were also afforded to her. They gave her beds. Uh, insure diapers, you know, perform services for physical therapists, things of that nature. So I think it's important that people know the scope of hospice. Thank you for the call. Anything to add to that? No, just you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think it's it's for diagnoses across the spectrum Uh, and 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 it provides services beyond, I think, what people mm. um, really imagined. And, and that's part of why we should reframe what hospice means. I think part of having these difficult conversations is really, you know, you can have a conversation about what hospice provides without necessarily focusing on death as an aspect of it. Um, <clears throat> One issue that, uh, that occurs to me that might make complicate things even beyond where they would be is dealing with Alzheimer's patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're dealing with someone who's has difficulty kind of comprehending what is going on. Right. There must be special um, considerations for people like this. What might they be? Well, I think you look for ways to involve the patient when and where you can in terms of yeah. autonomy, and often that depends on where they are in their illness pr- progression. Mm-hmm. And, and often Alzheimer's patients who are accessing hospice care are towards the very end where they um, – are, are unable to make any decisions. And and then it's really about also involving family and caregivers. And sometimes we see that family members can be on different pages. And um, it's really important just to open the door for these families to start mm-hmm. having these conversations. And the earlier that we do that, the more prepared they are to make difficult decisions as illness progresses. Who is having the conversations with the family members? That's a great question. I, I think, one, we should be having these conversations ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, as healthcare <clears throat> professionals, at, at any point of transition in care, um, we should be thinking about how to introduce 
whether a, a patient has an advanced directive, if they're familiar with the paperwork. And that's a part of the advanced care planning process. It's just opening the door, one, to the conversation, and two, to providing um, the forms that they can complete. And um, as healthcare professionals, we should be helping them open that door. How about the issue of wrapping up uh, relationships? I mean, you, there are situations out there where people have been estranged, sure. that sort of thing. That must come into play from time to time. I, absolutely. I think um, even past trauma and um, can can impact how people approach the end of their life. And I'd love to say that it's all about wrapping things up. Um, but often there are things that can't be wrapped up and there are questions that can't be answered. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the important work that many hospice social workers, nurses, physicians are doing at the end of life is just providing space, providing space for patients to to think about or to talk about the things that matter to them and um, providing space for those conversations to occur between families. The issue of honesty and the need to be honest. I, I would think there might be a temptation from time to time under some conditions to, to fib a little bit, to hedge the bet. As families or as professionals? Either way. You know, I've found that honesty is the best policy. Mm-hmm. and um, but, but also recognizing that it's the patient themselves who are in control of that. Um, I've worked with patients, and as much as I care about helping people have these conversations, I also recognize that there are some people who simply don't want to have the conversation, mm-hmm. and that's their right. And by putting that power in the hands of our patients and families, I think that's really important. Um, and and letting them guide us. Let's take another call. Jeanette joins us from Jefferson County. Jeanette, you're on the air. Go ahead. I I really appreciate your taking my call because I've been listening to this conversation, and it just brings me back to the situation when my mother was in the hospital and was told that she was going to be put on hospice. And my last conversations with her was, get some rest, I'll bring you home tomorrow. And I laughed, and she said, I'll love you forever. Mm. But my family members were in disagreement with anything that I was doing. And the next day, the doctor called and said she passed. Mm. Not the hospital, but the hospital told my family that I told them not to call them. So obviously there was a great deal of disagreements and um, a great deal of resentment towards me and basically now being excluded from all family members because they believe the hospital. And I really wasn't even called from the hospital, and she probably died some three to five hours prior to me even being called because nobody was taking care of her. And the hospital actually was the one that, you know, basically filled out her death certificate saying she died of chest trauma when in reality she died of congestive heart failure, which further caused resentment towards me because she fell at home. And I just, you know, I'm still, I mean, she died in 2003. It is now 2018. I still have no 
way of resolving issues with my family. Jeanette, I'm, I'm interrupting. Sorry to do so, but time is beating to get away. Uh, let's get Kara uh, to respond to that. Other well, complications here, including f- family issues. Yeah. Well, I just want to say how difficult, and it, it sounds like there's a lot of pain there. Um, and I think it really speaks for me to this conflict, right, at the end of life. And if we think about it, it's really a prime time for family conflict because especially when those discussions haven't occurred, um, everyone cares so deeply about the outcome and about the person who's going through the process that everyone has their own ideas about what should happen. So it's really a ripe arena for um, conflict. And one of the things that I would do as a social worker when when facing conflict with family members is to really try to bridge that gap in saying the reason there's this conflict is because of how much each of you cares about this person. And if we can start there at a place of agreement, at a place where we're having this conflict because we all care so deeply about this person and what mm-hmm. happens to them, um, then then that's a place of agreement. So even just that one place of agreement can help um, create some bridges for some some deeper discussion about about goals of care. Okay. Uh, let's. So we talked uh, earlier about Alzheimer's. Let's bring in Dolly calling from St. Louis. She'll address that issue, I believe. Dolly, you're on the air, but uh, make it quick, if you would. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you, Carol. Um, we are holding uh, a free event, an open house on April 16th at St. Anthony's Hospital and April 19th at our offices on Olive, 9370 Olive. Uh, and all you need is your, your person to come. We have the paperwork and we have some attorneys here and, we, and notaries to complete the advance directives for anybody in the community. And I also quickly wanted to add that Missouri is one of three states in the nation that does not recognize surrogacy decision making. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't written it down, it doesn't matter. So please take advantage of these two days to come here and have this completed. Our number is 1-800-272-3900. We'll put you that call with any questions. We'll put that number on our website. Thank you so much for calling. One, one final call here. Uh, Dana joins us from Crestwood. But, Dana, we're running out of time. I was just wondering what people can do that have no close family. And, I mean, I have no one even to be executor of a will, so I haven't bothered to make one because it's, you know, it's a very difficult situation. Good question. Yeah, that is a great question. I I think there are certainly people um, that you can find to trust if you have close friendships. Oftentimes, um, we're just afraid to ask the question. Uh, and sometimes it starts with just having this conversation with those who are close to us, even if they're not family members, that might open the door to someone who would be willing to serve in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the time we have left, which is about a minute, uh, tell me about your, your students quickly and those who are interested in this field. Yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier, so oftentimes social work students come in and they automatically think they just want to work with children's and fa- children and families. And they then get into the field and practicum experiences where they their eyes are open to these other areas of practice. We offer an end-of-life or a death-and-dying class to our graduate social work students at SLU. Mm-hmm. And um, we often have students leave that class saying, I could really see myself wanting to work with this population. And we have them complete an assignment where they have to do their own advanced directive, um, not officially, but where they go through the, the process mm-hmm. of the paperwork. And then they have to discuss that with a family member and a friend. And they recognize the difficulty, but also it really helps prepare them, I think, as social workers for having these conversations in the and future. An awful lot to learn, obviously, as Absolutely. we learned today. Carol Wallace, thank you so much for being with us. St. Louis University School of Social Work is where she hangs her hat. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
90.7 KWMU. 